my wife would say that I probably don't really need the mic anyway because I flap my gums loud and hard. So what can I say? As was introduced, I am Trevor and Jana's son-in-law, uh, my beautiful wife, you know, sitting next to Trevor there. Um, we had the, up until about a year ago, we were missionaries in Athens, Greece. We planted a church in central Athens, uh, and we were there for about eight years. Uh, due to visa problems, we find ourselves here. So I'm with an organization still called Commission to Every Nation that my father-in-law happens to be my boss, which is kind of fun. But anyway, <laughs> we get along. Uh, so it is an absolute privilege for, for me to be here this morning. Uh, Matt and I really get along, and he asked if I would be able to come and help out. So here I am. Now, Titus 3. So there's this movie, I don't know, that's come out a few months ago called Deadpool. How many of you have heard the hype about that? You know, some of you who have gray hair less than mine might know. Well, it's, uh, I'm kind of a nerd, and I like comic books, and I like to read comic books, but uh, this movie is, uh, is an R-rated superhero movie. Now, it's blown away any expectations given for it, and even it's kind of given Star Wars a run for, mo- for its money, which is kind of funny. Uh, but what gives it its R-rated distinction is the main, ca- main character's brutality, his use of coarse language, vulgar speech, nudity. Fun times, huh? So what does a stupid superhero movie have to do with our text this morning? Well, a while ago I was reading through my uh, feed, my news feed on my phone, because, you know, I'm probably addicted to it, uh, and I s- come across this article that says, should Christians watch Deadpool? Hmm. This article in response to the movie highlights a question asked by Christians for 2,000 years, it asks the question, how should Christians live in society? So, if Christ has made me new, how do I live my life? How do we move from what we read in the Bible to apply what we read in our lives? Let's face it, sometimes there are areas where we get this totally wrong, huh? There has always been an issue with truth, evident in our lives, i.e. rebirth, being saved, to understood truth lived out in our communities and society. This brings us to a topic broadly called Christian ethics. I won't get into that, but we're just going to kind of touch on it. So, how do we engage in politics? What type of language do we use? Do we participate in art? Theater? Do we go to movies? What types of music do we promote? Do we drink alcohol? Do we drink coffee? Do we gamble? Do we wear jewelry? (laughs) What types of sexual behavior do we engage in? How do we respond to the issues of gender obscurity? What's our response to the homeless, the needy, the marginalized, the disenfranchised in society? (laughs) Do we engage in social justice issues? And what's our response to family values? These are but a handful of complex issues that we must read and understand what the Bible says and act accordingly. Act accordingly to the truths found there. Now, I'm actually sure all of us here this morning have witnessed or have been in direct conflict with one another. I should get it off my foot. That'd be good. Maybe my wife works at the doctor's office and maybe I need to get glasses here. (laughs) Now, how do we respond to society when, when, you know, it used to be the most common Bible verse was, for God so loved the world, right? What's the most common Bible verse now quoted? Yes, judge not lest you be judged. See, there is a need. There is a, a foundational thing that's needed here 
a blueprint, so to speak, for us to understand and to interact with those around us, regardless of the current worldview. Luckily, we have that, and that's in Titus. Titus chapter 3. Paul's letter here, specifically written to Titus to deal with Cretan leaders. Believe me, most of my Greek friends were Cretan guys. Those guys are crazy. Now, not only was this letter written for those guys, but it's written for here, for us as well. Living, you know, 2016 in Gibsons. So, this morning, I will discuss three things of how the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it does for us to help us engage with the society around us. To answer the question, how do we live? One, the gospel results in gracious behavior. Two, the gospel motivates us to godly living. And three, the gospel challenges us to promote and protect, <clears throat> rather, to protect from behavior inconsistent with the gospel. Now, before we get rolling here, you'll notice that I will not teach this text the same way that Matt or Brian does, okay? My sermon is exegetical and it is expository and I do the same verse-by-verse -verse analysis in my study. But you know, there's an expression that says, old dogs, new tricks. I was taught in a different style of delivery. So bear with me as we get into the text. And I'll cover everything, just maybe not in the same order. It's like adult ADHD. Okay. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Titus chapter 3. I'm going to read the thing over. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, when I sent Artemis and Tichikas to you, now, I had to actually look in the Greek to make sure I knew how to say that. How many, would, how many when you're reading your Bible have troubles with that name? Do your best to come to me here in Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All of who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, you may have noticed in my brief outline, in my three points, I gave all of them, they started with the gospel, dot, dot, dot. Now, before I articulate anything else in this text, we need to look at what it says the gospel is. Many times over countless centuries, when Christians came to wrong actions in dealing with the question of how do I live, they acted wrongly because they didn't understand the full implications of the gospel. Now, I include myself here. 
So before I articulate how the gospel motivates us to godly living, I must connect the dots of the gospel so that you can see what it is and how marvelously central it is and displayed in this text and how foundational it is to our life and our actions. So, if I asked you this morning, what is the gospel? Some of you might answer, well, it's Jesus Christ dying for my sins so that I can go to heaven. Okay, that is correct in as much as saying that a Ferrari is a fast red car. Both are functionally accurate, but there's so much more to it, isn't there? Both can be, you know, a couple of years ago, I guess, I had confession time. I had the time, I had the pleasure of going to a church planting conference in Paris. And, uh, you know, after the conference, I had some time to see the sights, the sounds, the smells, and the tastes of Paris. And I was near the Eiffel Tower with my beautiful wife kind of gazing up, and I see this mob of people looking at something on the sidewalk. I'm like, oh, that's weird. So, like a sheep, I was kind of curious, right? I walk over, and I, and I see shiny, glowing, this red Ferrari with its yellow symbol and a sign in English on the window that says, drive me for 89 euros. Now, that's about 100 bucks. I confess, I was really tempted. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on, you know, whether you ask my wife or me, uh, my stomach won the battle and we went for lunch. So, with the Ferrari, there's the sound right? There's the styling, the leather seats, there's the horsepower to torque ratio. Now, how many of us have actually driven a Ferrari? No, don't raise your hands, rhetorical question. Uh, But deep down, we know that this car is unique. It's special. It's an amazing feat of styling and engineering. The same is true for the gospel. Yes, Jesus did die for our sins, but deep down, we know it's much more profound and more significant, with deeper implications than just a spiritual get-out-of-jail-free uh, get card. So, what is the gospel? If we look at verses 4 to 7, we have a clear and concise description. In verse 8, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. He is referring to the gospel presentation in 4 through 7. So, in this presentation, Paul presupposes faith as our role in accepting. So instead of, he focuses rather on God's role, and he does so in a uniquely Trinitarian way. Now, some of you might say, Trina, what? Okay, starts with God the Father. So, verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So God the Father, by his mercy, chooses to save people unfit to be saved. The measuring stick or the merit or the the worthiness of being saved is not not anything we've done, but mercy actualized by God's loving kindness. Us being saved is wholly conceived and accomplished by God the Father. Now, there are a couple of really bad metaphors I could employ here. You know, director of a movie, coach of a team, you know, director of a symphony. All of them fail to encompass the centrality of God the Father with the salvation of fallen man. Verse 5 says, He saved us. That leads us to the mechanics of salvation, how it's actually accomplished. So if you have broken, dirty, unfit people, which all of us are, by the way, 
How does one actually be fit or be made acceptable or be made, to be made clean when the only metric of salvation is the loving mercy of God? The onus is then put on God, right? This is where the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, his Son, come in. This is what I mean by Trinitarian. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all have a role to play in the gospel, in the salvation of mankind. Look at verse 5 again. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. So for dirty, unfit people to be clean, for us to be saved, something must be done to us from the outside, externally, from the outside in, for us to be made new, to be made clean. Now, interestingly, there's this specific word here. In Greek, it's palian... Uh, oh, see, the kids, my kids are going to mock me about this now. Palianisias. Now, interestingly, that's translated as regeneration here. It's used only one other time in the New Testament, in Matthew 19.28. And in that text, Jesus is return, er, referring to a future event where Christ will return and bring with him a recreated world. Now, here, it's in the genitive case for all you kind of English nerds or, you know, yeah, it's funny. I kind of like that too. But it's possessive. It's genitive, it's possessive, and it's connected directly to washing, washing of regeneration. Paul tells Titus that the God who saves us, not by our deeds, but by the washing, by the washing of regeneration, by the washing of rebirth, by the washing of being made new. In his book, Systematic theology. There's this, I like to read old dead guys. Uh, there's this guy named, he's a theologian named Louis Burkhoff. And he says regeneration is this. A creative, hyperphysical operation of the Holy Spirit by which man is brought from one condition into another. From a condition of spiritual death into a condition of spiritual life. So, when Paul uses the term washing of regeneration, he is referring to to the symbol expressed in our baptism, and specifically the baptism by Jesus Christ. Now, if you have your Bibles, quickly, uh, flip over to John chapter 1. You'll kind of get the connection. So you've got John. He's baptizing with water. He's sent to pronounce the coming of Jesus. He doesn't know it's Jesus yet. And so you've got all these Pharisees coming up to him and asking, well, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? And he's like, no, 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 no. So, verse 29, chapter 1, verse 29 of John the next day when he, John, saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed in Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, on, he, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's the washing of regeneration. And I have seen and have been borne witness that this is the Son of God. So we can see that this ex external action needed for us to be clean is accomplished by the Holy Spirit through the work of the washing of rebirth, of regeneration. And we recognize this as when we celebrate it in baptism. See, to recap thus far, God in his mercy saves us. Not by our doing, but he recreates us. He makes us new through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He makes us clean, making us spiritually alive. So, 
You with me so far? Okay. Time changed. And so if I see you guys start pulling out pillows, I'll know. Okay, let's, let's continue verses 5 and 6. So he saves us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So not, not only does God make us spiritually alive, spiritually new, via the Holy Spirit, but he also renews us. Now, renewal, this word here, is from the same word that we get, renovation. So, in really simplistic terms, think of yourself in an old house. You know, some of us leak, our roof leaks, our, we've got rot on the bottom. Uh, you know, there's mold in the bedrooms. We're falling apart. The current owner of the house is like an absently landlord. He doesn't care. He just lets you live there. God sees the potential of this house, and he buys the house. There's a transfer of ownership. The house, even though it still has the same issues, is radically different because of the transfer of ownership. Now, renewal is the process of the Holy Spirit which strips off the roofs, fixes it, makes it new. He uh, fixes the water damage, cleans out all the rot, and replaces the affected areas. This takes time. But in the end, at the end of the day, God has a beautiful, perfect, made new house. Okay, it's a cheesy metaphor, but you get the idea, right? The prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 36, verse 25, describes the process and distinction between regeneration and renewal this way. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. From all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Regeneration is the cleansing and that change of heart. Renewal is the work of the Holy Spirit causing us to walk in those statutes, God's laws. So, how is this all accomplished? First, back to the text here, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is where the Son comes in. God in his mercy, he saves us. The Holy Spirit changes us, and it's accomplished by Jesus Christ. Now, the language Paul uses here is very significant. When he says that the renewal of the Holy Spirit is done by the pouring out, that's, re that's a reference directly and symbolizes the death of Jesus Christ. When we take the cup, that pouring out, that, that's the same metaphor that Paul is using here. The pouring out is in reference to Jesus Christ's shed blood, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So Paul says that Jesus' blood that's poured out results in us being justified and heirs in eternal life. Now, we have a transition here from holy cleansing language to kind of legal forensic language. Paul is saying that the pouring out of Jesus' blood spiritually, internally, makes us clean. And legally, this is the result. Okay, what do I mean by that? We have to look at this term justified or justification. 
Now, most of the time, we use this term in a completely different way, cause and effect. You know, I'm justified in my anger with you because you blah, 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 right? Now, theologically, justification, or to be justified, is something very specific. So, according to the laws of God, if you sin, what happens? The penalty is what? Death. So that's Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's pretty finite for us in an age of plurality and tolerance, isn't it? Uh, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. So all of us have sinned, and all of us deserve to die due to the penalty of sin. That's pretty grim and hopeless, isn't it? And if that's all that there was this morning, I'd pack up and I'd leave and I'd be angry with God. Quoting Burkhoff again, the old dead theologian dude, justification is the judicial act of God by which he declares on the basis of the righteousness of Christ that the claims of the law, i.e. death, are satisfied with respect to the sinner, which is us. So I'll finish Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Now, to be justified involves the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of God's favor upon our lives. God in his mercy saves us. Through the Holy Spirit, he makes us spiritually alive. He renews us. He changes us. And he says that this is done by the death of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of his shed blood so that not only do we have new life, we're clean, but legally we're not bound by the law anymore. We have been pardoned. We're no longer on death row. That's amazing if you actually take the time to consider the implications of that. But the best is still yet to come. So, being justified by grace, verse 7, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So when Paul uses this word heir, he is employing a metaphor directly out of Greco-Roman law. This is probably my favorite doctrine in the entire scriptures. I know it's really pathetic to have a favorite doctrine, but I'm a nerd, what can I say? So, question time. How many people here know who Gaius Octavius was? Anybody? There you go. Now, if you have your Bibles, again, look back at the Titus text and look at verse 12. This is just kind of a weird trivia here. It's only relevant to me, but that's okay. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So, Gaius Octavius, who is better known by his common name or title of Caesar Augustus. You know, Luke 2, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken throughout the entire Roman world. That is Gaius Octavius. Paul's decision to stay at Nicopolis, which in Greek literally translate the city of victory, it's kind of a funny story. It's a place where you can still go. I've been there. Gaius Octavius, after his, he, he won a decisive victory there over Antony and Cleopatra. You know, Cleopatra, how many of you read Asterix? Yeah, that Cleopatra. Gaius Octavius won a sea battle over Antony and Cleopatra, and it solidified his sole control as emperor over the entire Roman world in 31 BC. Now, what makes him significant is how he became Augustus. The rest is just kind of a fun, trivial story. Does anybody know who Gaius Octavius' great uncle was? It even gets nerdier. We all know who he is. If, you, if you've read Shakespeare, or if you've 
love history, or even if you've read Asterix, his great uncle is Julius Caesar. See, after his assassination, Julius Caesar, in 44 BC, he names his, you know, great nephew as his heir and adopted son. Gaius goes from an insignificant nobody, really, to a, a distant relative to probably the greatest emperor the world has ever seen. He went from having absolutely no claim, no title, to having full rights as a son because he was adopted as heir. Without the act of being adopted by Julius Caesar, Gaius wouldn't have even been a footnote in the annals of history. Paul says that Christ's shed blood not only pardons us, but makes us adopted as sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges that that entails. Eternal relationship with God. Now, literally, I could talk for hours on this subject. I find it completely fascinating. And if you're interested, do a word study of the whole doctrine of adoption in, <coughs> excuse me, in Scripture. It's fascinating. So to sum up the gospel, God in his mercy saves us. Through the Holy Spirit, he makes us spiritually alive and renews us, changes us. And he says this is done by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the pouring out of his blood. That puts us right with God. Not only have we been made clean, not only have we been pardoned, but we have been adopted as heirs into God's eternal family with the full rights and privileges that that entails, relationship with God. Our role in salvation then becomes either acceptance or denial. Either we believe or we don't. Regardless of whether we accept this or not, it's still there. God is in the business of saving fallen man. Now, that was probably the longest introduction to a sermon in the history of sermons. So, if that is true, if the gospel that I just articulated is true, how do we live? Let's look back at Titus 3 again. Verse 1. The gospel results in gracious behavior to those around us. Now, first off, we see in verse 1 and 2 a list of behaviors that Paul describes as evident in the life of a believer, in the life of changed people. Now, in other words, the gospel causes us to act. This, he, this list is what the gospel causes us to act like in society. Now, if you look at this list, how many of you are disturbed and kind of shocked by it? Let me read it. Some of you might even say, I don't know if I can do that. We are to be submissive to rulers and authorities. <laughs> we are to be o obedient. I, I lived in an anarchist neighborhood. You know how offensive that is? To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. Ah, thank you. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. To show perfect courtesy towards all people. Paul describes this list in other texts. It's kind of shorthand. He says, live in a manner worthy of your calling. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.12, he articulates it this way. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, the second coming. So the only difference between people in society and us is what? We've been changed by the gospel. This is a reminder of the universality of God's grace to all of mankind who believe. 
our actions, our deeds, our deeds, our, our, everything that we do in society reflects the glory of God and his grace present in our lives. I'll give you an example. Uh, now, it's kind of a controversial one, but I'm just going to roll with it anyway. There's no secret that in dealing with the whole same-sex issue that the church has been maligned, right? Many of those engaged in that lifestyle have said nasty things and have been, they say that they've been hurt by the church and they speak evil against it. How do we, as Christians, respond to that? Now, in our church plant, there was a guy who started attending early on. He was about 20 of us at the time, and he was a friend of a friend. Uh, generally, you know, because, you know, when, when God created mankind, he, uh, he gives people the DNA to learn language. I kind of missed, uh, God skipped over that in me. So it was really difficult for me to learn language. So what I would do is I would have my doodle pad in the back, and as my friends were speaking, I would doodle with my hands, keep my hands busy, and it would help me focus on the Greek. So this guy, the first time he comes, he sees me. And after church, he kind of sheepishly comes up to me and says, hey, is it okay if I bring my drawing pad next week? I'm like, okay, absolutely. So for the next week and many weeks afterwards, him and I, side by side in the back row doodling. So right off the bat, we knew that this guy wasn't a believer. And furthermore, we knew that he was gay. So after spending some time with us as a group, and about a year later, he had to move back to his village due to the economic crisis. He says to me this, Heath, my mom drugged me to church as a kid. I hate the church. It has done nothing but to condemn me and to cause me shame. I hate what you guys stand for. I hate what you say. But I can't get around the fact that you love me. Even though you don't accept my lifestyle, you accept me. I've never been felt content like anywhere before like this. You see, sometimes we think that if we show courtesy, if we show, show be gentle to people, we show mercy, if we obey and we don't fight for our rights in society, that we're capitulating to society's norms and ideals. Nothing can be further from the truth. In my experience, the power of the gospel shines when we're submissive, when we're obedient, when we're non-argumentative, when we're gentle. When we show courtesy to people who, like us, by the way, don't deserve it and are maligned for it, the gospel shines. And at the end of the day, people see the power of the gospel in our lives and they're drawn to it. So if the gospel is true in our lives, we must change the way we act and perceive society. Two, the gospel motivates us to godly living. Now, we've looked at how the gospel results in gracious behavior. We need to look at how the gospel motivates us to godly living. Verse three is another list. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Yeah. This list stands in direct contrast with the previous list. Paul says, just like our culture, this is what you once were. Then Paul continues, and like we previously discussed, shares the gospel. 
And then he says in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, i.e. those who have accepted the gospel, may be careful to, vote, to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So, the gospel changes us from the inside out, and that change is evident in the works we engage in in society. Now, another friend of mine from our church plant, Margie is her name. Uh, when I first met Margie, she had shorts up to here, tattoos, shaved head, earrings, smoking a joint, and uh, interesting character, let's just say. She would be classified as somebody living a secular anarchist lifestyle. She was into drugs, into sex, and also into the occult. So, a friend of mine comes up to me afterwards. He says, you know that girl there? He says, God told me that she is going to be saved. I'm like, okay, cool. He says, but we have to fast and pray for her. I'm like, okay, cool. So for about a year, year, year and a half, about four or five of us, every Tuesday and Thursday, we fasted and prayed for Margie. And to our surprise, what happens? She believes. She believes. So we have this crazy, strung-out-looking girl starting to come to church. Now, and this isn't an anarchist church, so when she looks weird, we all looked weird, so she looked even weirder. So what happens? She starts getting involved in outreach. She's going to Bible study. She's learning. She's growing. And a year later, she's baptized. She starts running our student ministry. And now, nobody ever said to her, you need to change your looks. You need to be more modest. You need to change your style. You need to stop smoking. You need to quit hanging around with bad people. Nobody said any of that to her. See, the Holy Spirit's work in her life changed her from the inside out. She is a completely different looking person on the outside than she was two years earlier. She is an active member in our church. See, she is an active active example of the gospel's power to change from the inside out. And people are absolutely drawn to her. The gospel motivated her to godly living. See, in a world where things seem to be getting worse by the second, there's hope because the gospel changes us and gives us the desire and the power to think of others outside of ourselves first, to do good works as a byproduct of our change. Now, some of us may think that Margie is an extreme example, <laughs> but, but if you believe, this is happening to you and I as well. Our lives should be characterized by our internal change expressed externally in our actions in society. That is how the gospel motivates us to godly behavior. And thirdly, the gospel challenges us to protect from behavior con- inconsistent with the gospel. This is the fun one. Now, verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, he is self-condemned. Notice how in verse 1 and 2, right at the beginning, with respect to those outside the church, our actions should be characterized by gentleness and good deeds, regardless of what they believe or how they malign us. But when it comes to those inside the church, what does he say? Avoid foolish controversies. Avoid genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. Paul says that these issues are trivial, completely unprofitable, and absolutely worthless. Now, 
How many of you who have been Christians for more than a couple years have not seen conflict in a church? I seriously love to see anybody that has not seen conflict in a church. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, what happens when there is conflict in a church? People are angry with each other, right? And they focus on what he said, what she said. You know, and then there's late night meetings to discuss what he said, what she said. And then, you know, there's kind of lists of excommunications. If you don't do this, then we'll do this. And it goes on and on and on. And before you know it, months have gone by. And we are navel-gazing. And the cycle continues and continues and continues. And that's why we're called hypocrites from society at large. Now, let's look at verse 14 here. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. So how many needs that were urgent have we missed out because of our fighting, because of our foolish controversies? Now, (laughs) our conflict contributes to our unfruitfulness. I'm not talking about, okay, obvious issues of sin and church discipline here, okay? Do not, do not put the two together. I'm talking about those issues that Paul himself calls unprofitable and worthless. Look at verse 10. For a man who stirs up division after warning him once and twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, the reason why Paul is so specific and hard in addressing these things is because many times, on purpose or by accident even, The implications of these foolish uh, controversies add or detract from the gospel. Therefore, there's a change, and they change the meaning of what it means to be saved. So, if your primary concern, for instance, is of how people should act in church, if you were legislating morality issues rather than implying grace and mercy, chances are deep deep down, subconsciously, you believe that your actions contribute to salvation. That's pretty dangerous ground, isn't it? So not only do these divisions detract us from our purpose of good works, but they can blind us and those around us to the understanding the truth of the gospel. That's dangerous, and that's why Paul is so hard in calling those engaged in these behaviors as warped and self-condemned. So instead of becoming embroiled in these issues and controversies, the gospel challenges us to protect against them. So... In conclusion, now some pastors, if they, you know, from the style of preaching that I get on, if I say in conclusion, some pastors have seven more points, but I don't. We're almost done. So to answer the question then, how do we live, is wrapped up in our identity in the gospel. If we've been saved by God, if we've been spiritually alive, if we've been changed day by day, if we have been pardoned, if we have been adopted as sons and daughters of Christ, or of God, rather, the truth, that truth in our life results in gracious behavior to those around us. It motivates us to godly living, just like my friend Margie, and it challenges us to protect from behavior that sidetracks us, that is inconsistent with the gospel. So our ability to deal with complex issues in society is directly proportional to how evident the gospel is present in our lives. So if we struggle in any of these areas, It's because either we haven't accepted the gospel, we haven't actually been changed, or we don't understand or confused by what the gospel is, or subconsciously, 
we don't believe that the gospel can actually heal and give us the power that we need to change. I was stuck for there, there in that spot for a long time. There is hope. And all of it revolves around the gospel. So, if any of this resonates with any of you, talk to Brian, talk to Matt when he gets back, talk to myself. I'd love to discuss it. So I leave you with one final question. Should Christians watch Deadpool? Deadpool.